Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 66. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this in Austin, Texas, very early in the morning on March 28, 2022. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. For those of you who have been hearing that word but didn't have a good working definition, presentism is the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. Longstanding and attentive listeners have heard me go off about presentism and a different but related idea, weaponizing of history for contemporary political purposes. My various tirades on that topic appear in several episodes, including toward the end of episode 25, Taking Stock, and episode 48, a sidebar I put up on November 19th, 2021. Announcements and some news from History Twitter. The weaponization of history by, shall we say, both sides of the American political divide is really out of hand. I have it in mind to do a sidebar episode on that subject at some point, as soon as my muse leads me in that direction. Before we get to business in Virginia, a shout out to devoted listener Phil from Reading, Pennsylvania. Reacting to my little digression on letters of Mark and reprisal a couple of episodes back, a Texan congressman had proposed issuing letters of Mark to go after the yachts and planes of Russian oligarchs. Phil sent me a direct message on Twitter this Friday pointing out that letters of Mark have been outlawed by international agreement since at least the Paris Declaration of 1856. That agreement provides, in pertinent part, that, quote, privateering is and remains abolished. The neutral flag covers enemies' goods with the exception of contraband of war. Neutral goods, with the exception of contraband of war, are not liable to capture under enemy's flag. Blockades, in order to be binding, must be effective, that is to say, maintained by a force sufficient really to prevent access to the coast of the enemy. Well, that would seem to dispose of the matter, but maybe not, insofar as the United States was not actually one of the 55 signatories to that declaration. The International Committee of the Red Cross maintains a database of treaties and agreements and whatnot, and it includes the following write-up, quote, The United States, which aimed at a complete exemption of private property from capture at sea, withheld its formal adherence, its amendment not having been accepted by all the powers. In 1861, at the beginning of the Civil War, the United States announced nevertheless that it would respect the principles of the Declaration for the duration of the hostilities. Equally, in 1898, during the war against Spain, it was affirmed that the policy of the government of the United States would be to abide by the provisions of the Declaration throughout the hostilities. The rules laid down in the Declaration were later considered as part of general international law, and even the United States, which is not formally a party thereto, abides by its provisions. I suppose letter of Mark fanboys can see a door cracked slightly open. Unless there is some other body of international law to which the United States is an actual signatory that bans privateering, not claiming any expertise here, 
The prohibitions of the Paris Declaration of 1856 remain policy that we could theoretically reverse or temporarily waive without having to go through the tedious and unpopular bit about withdrawing from an actual treaty. Russian oligarchs, being just about the least popular class of people on earth right now, I doubt we'd take a lot of political heat from the international law crowd if we did. So, letter of Mark enthusiasts, keep hope alive. And yes, for the rest of you, no, I don't actually think it would be a good idea to go license Yahoo privateer wannabes, however entertaining it might be, until something went hideously wrong. And yet, the romantic in me sometimes thinks... Yes, I am a pirate, 200 years too late, cannons don't thunder, there's nothing to plunder, I'm an over 40 victim of fate, writhing too late, writhing too late. How it took me this long to use that clip, I'll never know but this actually seems like the right moment for it. I'll put a link in the show notes to a live rendition in which Jimmy Buffett was accompanied by the immortal Jerry Jeff Walker, who lived a couple of blocks from me in Austin until he died in October 2020, just as I was beginning work on this podcast. Today's episode looks at the stories of the lesser-known hostage emissaries, Thomas Savage and Namantak, whom Captain Christopher Newport and the Paramount Chief Powhatan, Powhatan exchanged during their encounter in 1608. Neither were as important in that role as Pocahontas, who even shorn of myth and Disneyfication was an extraordinary woman who was, in her time, a hostage transformed into an emissary a story we will get to very shortly. Before she became either, however, young Thomas Savage and Namantak would have their own extraordinary adventures in Virginia, London, and Bermuda, and their lives deserve greater prominence in the early history of the Americans. Attentive listeners know that the European conquest and settlement of the Western Hemisphere was assisted at critical junctures by people who crossed cultures, voluntarily and involuntarily, and learned entirely alien languages. In the early history of English North America, the most famous such people were Pocahontas in Virginia and Tisquantum, Squanto at Plymouth. There were many others. The first and perhaps ultimately most consequential was a woman named Malinson, an enslaved native woman who became Hernando Cortez, translator and consort and played a crucial role in his conquests of the Aztecs. I don't recall mentioning her before, insofar as that story is outside the notional boundary of this podcast, but she is famous today in Mexico as a traitor to her people. Her name lives on in an epithet for disloyalty like Benedict Arnold to Americans or Quisling to Norwegians and other Europeans. Her Wikipedia page is worth your time, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Inside the territory of today's United States, the list of translator emissaries even by the early 1600s is pretty long. Many of them had remarkable personalities in addition to their linguistical abilities. Some of them remained loyal to their own people, and others of them stayed with their adopted cultures. 
Those of you who have been through the first 65 episodes will, of course, remember the African Esteban, who learned several languages of tribes in Texas and the Southwest and would eventually serve as advance man for the Coronado Entrada before being hacked to bits by Indians in the pueblos of today's New Mexico. There was the sad story of Juan Ortiz, who was captured near Tampa, tortured and eventually saved by a chief's daughter. Ortiz would be rescued by the Soto expeditionaries and would lead a group of translators through most of Hernando de Soto's bloody exploration of the American Southeast. There was the Turk, who would earn Coronado's trust and then send him and his men on a wild goose chase deep into Kansas, hoping they would die on the prairie. Magdalena, a converted Florida Indian and highly recommended translator, would lead Luis Cancer to his death in 1549. And of course, there was Paquiquinio, christened Don Luis de Velasco, who would live among the Spanish for 10 years and lead the massacre of the Spanish Jesuit mission to Powhatan territory in early 1571. He may well have become Opakenkana, a theory I like mostly because it is fun to think so, even if there are also good arguments to the contrary. The English repeatedly tried to recruit or capture Indians to serve as guides and emissaries. At Roanoke, you will recall that they brought back Manteo and Juan both of whom learned serviceable English. Manteo would remain helpful to the English. And in their 16th century thinking, they honored him by making him, quote, governor of Roanoke Island, a royal officer. Juan would have none of it and remain loyal to his own people. In June 1605, George Weymouth would capture five Indians on the coast of Maine, known to us as Nahanada, Amaret, Skidwares, Manetto, and Asakomoit. We covered their various fates in the second episode on the Popham colony. Suffice it to say that Nahanada and Skidwares would make it back to Maine. Neither would be helpful to the English. And finally, you will recall Mathieu de Costa, an African who spoke the languages of Acadian Indians along with Champlain in 1604. We know very little of him, but there is no reason to believe he didn't serve the French loyally. There were many other such people, most of whom are lost to history. One has to imagine they led anguished, lonely lives, choosing between loyalty to their own people and service to those who had adopted them, sometimes kindly, sometimes coercively. Most of them lacked the stone-cold capacity of Magdalena and Don Luis to murder their keepers while pretending friendship. Some of them must have led quietly desperate lives. Eventually, there were Europeans who lived among the Indians and would remain loyal to them, even while divided. We can imagine that was true of the survivors of the lost colony of Roanoke. There were enough of their footprints to believe that many of them integrated with local tribes. That is why the Virginia Company was so eager to find them more than 20 years later. Think also of Peter and Charles, the two French sailors who sought refuge with the Micmac tribe of Nova Scotia, still living in the oral tradition of those people into the 20th century. Thomas Savage was the first English person with an identity in history who comes down to us as having lived among the Indians of North America and mastered their language and customs, 
survived for a long time, and maintained good relations with both sides. My main source for the Savage story is an article by Christopher Clausen, published in the American Scholar in 2007, Between Two Worlds. Savage was born in Cheshire in 1594, perhaps a couple of years before Pocahontas. Savage's life before 1608 or so is lost to history, at least so far, but he became firmly part of the Jamestown record when he arrived with Captain Christopher Newport's so-called first supply in early 1608. He covered all of that in Jamestown and the Powhatans Part 4 back at the end of January 2022. And if you have a vast luxury of time and a great concern for detail, you might want to go back and listen to that episode before continuing with this one. Or not. Recall that shortly after Newport had returned in that cold winter, an accidental fire ripped through Jamestown and burned down a number of the buildings, including the storehouse where they kept their food. At that point, the Paramount Chief Powhatan had not decided to expel the English, or at least not immediately. He was interested in their technology. He had already released John Smith on the promise of receiving cannons, which Smith slyly offered to Powhatan's men, knowing that they could not possibly move them. Now Powhatan sent a gift of venison to Smith in Newport, a bit of a slam on John Ratcliffe, who was at this time the official president of the colony and who had negotiated incompetently with Powhatan, and invited them to Werowokamoko, his capital at the site of today's Richmond. It was on that visit that Newport and Smith suggested the exchange of, quote, sons with Powhatan. Thomas Savage went to live with the Indians, and Powhatan's trusty servant, Namantak, went to live with the English. Clausen describes the basis for the exchange, quote, The exchange of hostages was another common custom to the English and the Indians, while the line between adoption and hostage-taking could be perilously thin. According to Captain John Smith, who was also present and had already met Powhatan under hair-raising circumstances, the king received Newport kindly and seemed much taken with young Thomas. For his part, Newport wanted to take a native back to England. The Virginia Company was, after all, a commercial enterprise with hopes of turning a profit out of its precarious colony. To put it crudely, they could do with some advertising. And what could be more useful than a friendly native of subtle capacity? Back to me. Patton would treat young Thomas well. In the chief's household, Savage soon learned the local Algonquin dialect with apparently uncanny perfection. Sometime that spring, just a few months after the trade, Powhatan sent Savage and a group of armed men to Jamestown with a gift of turkeys, inquiring why Smith had been retaliating against Indians and whether he was planning a military expedition against Powhatan. Smith averred that he had just been punishing local Indians for stealing weapons and tools, which indeed they had been doing at Powhatan's instruction. Smith wrote subsequently that Savage had alerted him to some villainy, which Clausen suggests indicates that young Thomas already knew more Algonquin than the Indians realized and had passed along his suspicions to Smith. Imagine the difficult position he was in. 
Patton seems to have surmised that Savage had understood more than he had realized and sent him back to Jamestown with all his no doubt meager possessions. But the Paramount chief soon changed his mind and dispatched more gifts to Jamestown with a request that Savage return to Wero Wokamoko, which he did, this time staying for more than two years. Savage's reputation spread surprisingly far and wide. Word of his role reached the English court, and it was picked up by the robust Spanish intelligence network, which reported to Madrid that Powhatan makes much of the lad. In 1609, Henry Spellman, another English teenager, wrote that Savage and four or five Indians came to Jamestown from the Great Powhatan with a gift of venison. Spellman, who would go on to have his own career as an interpreter in Virginia, returned with Savage. Powhatan entertained them royally, granting both English boys the honor of sitting with him at his own table. Now let's go back to Clausen, quote, What happened next is ambiguous and suggests that Savage was starting to feel the divided loyalties that were inevitable in his situation. The period that the increasingly desperate colonists called the starving time had begun, and Powhatan may have planned to take advantage of their weakness and internal divisions by driving them away forever before they became too numerous. Me interjecting, he almost certainly did, as those of you who listened to last week's episode already know. Continuing with Clausen now. After the bloody ambush of an English trading party, Spellman and Savage, together with a third colonist, one Samuel, a Dutchman, decided it would be safer to depart. But Thomas evidently had second thoughts. According to Spellman's account, quote, Savage feigned as some excuse of stay, and unknown to us went back to the Powhatan and acquainted him with our fleeing. Powhatan's warriors pursued the two fugitives, killing Samuel. Spellman escaped, perhaps with the help of Pocahontas, and after living for months with the friendlier Potomacs, was rescued by a worthy gentleman named Captain Argyll. Whatever Savage's part really was in this episode, it became clear that the mercurial Powhatan no longer trusted him. In 1610, he escaped or was sent back to Jamestown again. Once more, he had been overhearing too much. Back to me. Savage next appears in the record a few years later. Clausen believes that he may have been present when Argyll kidnapped Pocahontas in 1613 and a year later at her wedding to John Rolfe, which would end the First Anglo-Powhatan War. In 1614, he accompanied Ralph Hamer, the colony's secretary, to a meeting with Powhatan. Hamer was, in Clausen's words, somewhat taken aback when the king ignored him and warmly greeted his interpreter, saying to Savage, My child, you are welcome. You have been a stranger to me these four years. At what time I gave you leave to go to see your friends? Till now you never returned." This was not quite true, but Powhatan could be as disingenuous as any diplomat in negotiations. Savage, now about 20 years old, and Powhatan were reconciled, and Savage resumed his role as a translator and intermediary. From this point, Savage seems to have led a fascinating life in Virginia. Unfortunately, the historical record is very thin. 
At some point, Savage seems to have fallen into the bad graces of Opa Kankana, who is far more reflexively hostile to Europeans than his kin Powhatan. Opa Kankana put out a hit on Savage, who was sent, or fled, for his own safety to live on the eastern shore under the chief Debedevan, the so-called Laughing King of the Akamaks. Debedevan seems to have taken quite a liking to Savage and at some point granted him 9,000 acres of land in the area today known as Savage Neck. He became the first English resident of the Eastern Shore. Now back to Clausen, quote, There, far from the contentions of Jamestown, he married a colonist named Anna, or Hannah, and they had a son named John. At an unknown date, Savage was given the low military rank of Ensign, in 1621, John Pory, another secretary of the colony, toured the eastern shore seeking salt and trade. He marveled at the adventures of his interpreter. This Thomas Savage, he wrote three years later, it is 16 years since he went to Virginia being a boy. He was left with Powhatan for Namantak to learn the language. And as this author affirmeth, with much honesty and good success, without any public recompense, yet had an arrow shot through his body at their service. When and how he acquired the arrow, we do not know. Savage would save the English in Virginia, or at least some of them, one more time. In 1621, he and Debedevan, the Laughing King, would get wind of a plot by Opakankana to launch an all-out war against the English, and they would warn the then-governor, George Yeardley. Yeardley, not the first among Jamestown's leaders to trust the Powhatans a bit too much, was incredulous. He did warn the outlying plantations, however, and some of them would prepare defenses that would save them, when Opakankana would indeed spring his trap in 1622, a story we will cover a couple of episodes down the road. That is all we know. Clausen observes that for a man with a gift of tongues, it seems ironic that in none of the accounts do we ever hear his own voice. Maybe he didn't write. Savage died by 1633, not yet 40. Although having lived through something like 25 years of Jamestown, we must credit him with extraordinary longevity under the circumstances. Finally, Clausen suggests that Savage may have been the earliest English inhabitant of the New World who has living descendants. I doubt that, insofar as I would assign fairly high odds to the Roanoke survivors having produced offspring after they moved in with the local Indians. But Savage may have been the first such person to whom we can assign a name. Savage's counterpart was the young Powhatan Namantak, the Paramount Chief's trusty servant. We know even less about his life, for apart from three well-documented appearances in the historical record, most of what we know is only shadows, oblique references, or the absence of any mention of him at times and places where he might have been. My main source for Namantak's life is an article written by Professor Alden T. Vaughn for the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography in 2018, Namantak's Itinerant Life and Mysterious Death. 
Amantak, in fact, entered a history a bit before Thomas Savage. The English boy was along as a laborer, one of many such people who had come to Jamestown to work and die, but we don't know what he in fact did until he went along with Newport and Smith and ended up as a hostage-slash-emissary-slash-translator. Namantag, also quite a young man, was more prominent in that he lived in the Paramount Chief's household. Even before the famous swap of hostages, John Smith had already gotten to know Namantag, and he had guided Smith and his men on one of his exploratory trips around the Virginia Tidewater. He would do so again shortly after the exchange in early 1608. Then in April 1608, he would accompany Newport to London with Powhatan's blessing. Powhatan wanted to know the capabilities of these English. Namantak was gone from Virginia about five months, allowing for six weeks at sea going east, two months in London, and ten weeks coming back to Virginia. The surviving documents of that summer of 1608 refer to Namantak's presence in London numerous times without saying much about what he did. Here's how Alden Vaughn summarizes Namantak's footprints, quote, the Earl of Northumberland described Namantak as, quote, the Virginia prince for whom he purchased rings and other pieces of copper. The Venetian ambassador to England alerted his superiors to the arrival of one of the chief inhabitants of Virginia to treat with the king. The Spanish ambassador, Don Pedro Zuniga, was more expansive, informing Philip III that Newport brought a lad who they say is the son of an emperor of those lands, and they have coached him that when he sees the king, he is not to take off his hat and other things of this sort. But the skeptical Zuniga was, quote, amused by the way they honor him, for I hold it for sure that he must be a very ordinary person perhaps because Namantak, at least initially, lacked the trappings expected of European diplomats in clothing, manners, or connections. A few years later, a Flemish business agent and historian, Emmanuel van Meteren, careful listeners will recall it was Meteren who hired Henry Hudson for the Dutch East India Company, acknowledged that Newport's contingent brought a son of a king of that place with them as a hostage. That label obfuscates Namantak's principal role, for although he was perforce a hostage against Indian attacks during his absence from Virginia, surely in Powhatan's eyes, as well as the Virginia companies, Namantak was Powhatan's personal representative to the court of St. James, and therefore to be treated with some dignity and generosity, given Powhatan's ability in those early days to annihilate England's only North American foothold. Back to me, there's in fact no evidence that Namantag ever met with James I. It is unlikely that all mention of a royal audience would have disappeared from the historical record, so he probably didn't. Perhaps his visit was too short for it to be arranged, or maybe his command of English was not yet strong enough to make an audience worthwhile. The young Powhatan had nevertheless served the interests of both his chief, insofar as he would report back on all he had seen, and the Virginia Company, which, like any cash-burning startup, was always on the lookout for good press to help the next capital raise. Today's biotech industry stands on the shoulders of the Virginia Company. 
Amantac left England with Newport in mid-July and after a 10-week crossing would reach Virginia in late summer. Attentive listeners will recall from episode 58, back on February 4th, 2022, that Newport carried new orders, including the absurd instruction that Powhatan be crowned as a vassal of James I. Smith took Namantak and five or six men to Werowokamoko to return Namantak as promised, and to issue an invitation to Powhatan to come to Jamestown for his, quote, coronation. Powhatan refused to do this, but received Smith well. You will recall that Powhatan directed Pocahontas to host the evening's entertainment, which was, shall we say, exotic. Namantak would report various bits of information back to Powhatan, including that English nobles traveled around in carriages pulled by horses. Powhatan would subsequently request a coach and three for himself, and that England seemed very short of trees. He seems to have told Powhatan that he thought that the English might be interested in his lands for its trees. This was a shrewd, if mostly incorrect, observation. Namantak had only seen London, which in those days was devoid of trees, and the countryside was being rapidly deforested. England had become the first coal-burning economy, its air already choked with soot. It would be natural for Namantak to imagine that the English would covet the trees of Virginia, and indeed they did. Remember that the first colonists diverted themselves in 1607 by cutting clabbered, to go back with Newport that first summer. But Timber was far down the list of their many motivations. Newport and Smith shortly returned with a bunch of men and three boatloads, perhaps a metric buttload in the vernacular, of gifts for Powhatan. As long-standing listeners will recall, the coronation did not go well, notwithstanding the largesse. Newport tried to explain the purpose of the proposed crown, and Namantak did his best to explain to Powhatan that it was an honor. Powhatan wouldn't stoop to accept it. After cajoling didn't work, a couple of the English leaned on Powhatan's shoulders, which forced the old man to stoop a bit. On went the crown. Powhatan at least pretended to be unfazed, but his gift in return was an old deerskin cloak and his used moccasins. What were the English to do? Surely a king's cloak and shoes were worth all the stuff that Newport had brought along in the barges. As insulting as Powhatan's reciprocal gifts must have been to the English, it was enough for Newport to check one item off his list. These three encounters, the exchange for Tom Savage the visit to London, and the crowning of Powhatan are the most famous moments in Namantak's career that come down to us. The written record becomes sparse after this, but there is reason to believe that he was just as important as Savage, and had he not died in 1610, he might well have altered the course of English Virginia. During the last quarter of 1608, Powhatan allowed Namantak to continue as the colony's principal guide, He led several expeditions, including one beyond the fall line of the James, and assisted in negotiations that secured both corn for the settlers and valuable red dye for English cloth makers. 
In December 1608, Powhatan set Namantak to London again with Newport, this time accompanied by another young Powhatan man named Matchamps, whom the English understood was to be Namantak's servant. This would be a longer visit, but with a scant historical record. Very little is known today of this visit, which would conclude in July 1609, when the ill-fated third supply would sail with several new settlers, a huge amount of food and other supplies and orders to replace John Smith. Vaughn stitches together various hints in the surviving documents and concludes that Namantak and Matcham sailed with Newport and the other leaders on the sea venture, which would be cast away on Bermuda, a tale we covered last week in our episode on the starving time. As it would turn out, the Sea Venture castaways would be the lucky ones, missing the miserable winter of cannibalism and plague in Jamestown. Only 11 people, give or take, of 150 would be lost. The eight who sailed in the boat to get help from Jamestown and were never heard from again. Two of the ringleaders of the group that didn't want to continue to Virginia and were executed. At least one baby born on the island. And Namantak. He and Matchamps went off to live on their own, no doubt preferring the forests of paradise to living among the grumpy and smelly English in their huts on the beach. At some point, they had a falling out, and Matchamps killed Namantak. One of the Bermuda castaways reported that Matchamps dug too short a grave, so he cut off the legs of Namantak's corpse and laid them alongside his torso. There are a couple of remaining mysteries, which unfortunately will never be solved, barring some miracle of archaeology or the uncovering of a new document no one's seen before. We do not know why Matchumps killed Namantak. Maybe it was self-defense rather than murder. Perhaps it was because he opposed helping the English as Namantak had done. It is also not clear when Namantak's murder was discovered. In all likelihood, Matchups confessed it when he got to Virginia, to somebody, for surely Newport would have executed him had he known when Matchumps was still under his control. We do not know whom he told or why, or whether Powhatan never understood what had happened. We only know that the fact of the murder was subsequently related. Today, one can read a lot of books on Jamestown, as I have, and find very few references to Namantak. We are left to wonder whether the death of Powhatan's second most useful emissary, Pocahontas holds that title for all time, but she would not come into her own, as it were, for five more years, would have prevented the coming First Anglo-Powhatan War. Maybe he would have prevented some of the misunderstandings. There is a coda of sorts. During World War II, the United States Navy bought a 91-foot, 161-ton transport, really a tugboat, named the Thomas E. Moran. The Navy renamed her the USS Namantak. There must have been a history buff in the Department of the Navy's procurement operation. So there it was, a small boat for a short-lived Indian translator who served both Powhatan and the English of Jamestown more than 300 years before. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging, so please keep them coming. 
You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. If you listen to the podcast through one of the apps, such as Apple or Spotify, please consider leaving a five-star rating and writing a glowing review. They make my mother very happy. Until next time.